From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Mazi Dar. The sun was going down, it was a beautiful evening, and I was thinking about all the technologies that I had worked on with people in the valley and how they had been morphed into the value that they had become by companies working east of Sandhill Road. That's Andy Brown. He's the CEO of Sandhill East, a strategic advisory group supporting the growth of digital, technology, and fintech businesses. Andy joins me to talk about his start in programming, his successful career in banking, and his latest venture as an investor and advisor to early stage companies. We also talk about the FinTech Innovation Lab and the areas of FinTech he's most excited about. Hi, Andy. How are you? Oh, hey, Mazzy. I'm really good. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Where are you joining us from today? Uh, I'm joining you from Morristown, New Jersey today. That's terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Andy. Today, I thought we would start by hearing a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and how you got started. So I was born in the Cotswolds, actually in Stroud in Gloucestershire in the United Kingdom. And I lived there for really 10 years. And then my parents moved to uh, Henley on Thames, which is a, a very big rowing center, actually about 35 miles outside London. And I did my secondary education there from 11 to 18. And from there, I actually went to University College London and studied uh, chemical physics. So that was kind of my background. You weren't studying computer science in university? No, I, I did do some computer science in university, maybe on BBC Micros and a lot of Fortran 4. But hmm. that was more connected to the application of computers to science rather than computer science. I noticed that out of university, you went and became a software engineer at Shell. And this was way back, was this in 1986? Correct. So I actually started at ICI, which was a pharmaceutical and agrochemical company in, in uh, 84. Okay. And, and that was, if you like, the bridge between a degree in chemical physics and becoming a programmer. So I worked in, in actually in research chemistry, in protein binding site modeling, building 3D graphic systems at, at, at ICI, which allowed research scientists to, to essentially design molecules that could fit into those binding sites. It's actually a very similar problem to the problem we're dealing with with COVID right now. And from there, I went to Shell and worked on process control engineering, really, which was about the automation of a refinery using both linear programming and quadratic programming techniques which was a really, really interesting transition to make. Uh, I learned a bunch of different software programming languages while I was doing it. We have a lot of computer programmers who listen to this podcast. Can you tell them a little bit what it was like to be a programmer back in the mid-80s? Some of the more advanced systems at that time that we worked on were written in Pascal. I always liked Pascal, you know, traffic lights were red, <laughs> orange, or green instead of zero, one, or two. And, and, and there was some really, really nice features in Pascal in terms of structured programming. But I was still doing a lot of programming on RTEA, which was a Hewlett-Packard proprietary Unix platform on VAX VMS and on PDP-11s in Assembler mainly. So the difficulty, I think, in that era was that many companies had almost taken an engineering approach rather than a computer science approach to technology. So many of the things that ran at Shell, for example, in that era 
were running on shell-specific implementations of Fortran. It was called Shelltran, actually. It was like Fortran without a go-to statement. <laughs> the Pascal that we worked on was called PPP, and that also had a number of capabilities of Pascal that the the tech team viewed as not useful in terms of building maintainable code taken out from them. And then on RTEA, literally, Shell had their own file system, which was a binary-coded decimal file system. And people often ask me, how did I learn to read hex? And the answer is at 2 a.m. in a refinery at Shell, <laughs> going, going through and patching binary-coded decimal file systems. So it really gave me a foundation, not just in, in programming languages, but really in how computers work from, from registers up. And that, that also I found incredibly fascinating. Just, just understanding how they work at that level was, was just you know, amazing to me, actually. That's very cool. Well, I learned to program with Pascal as well in university. And yeah, you're talking about linear programming. Just for some reason, increased my stress level significantly. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the problem with taking any math and turning it into an algorithm is that it always looks so easy when it's in the math book. Right. But when you're actually trying to write the, the algo, it's a little bit tougher <laughs> and testing it's even harder. So, so Andy, in 1994, you you moved for the first time into the finance space. You started working at Paribas at the time, BNP Paribas? Yeah, so back then it was Paribas Capital Markets. I was actually at home one Sunday afternoon, you know, having a, a nice cup of tea, as you do in England. <laughs> and uh, I was reading the Sunday Times job, job section, and there was this advertisement that really caught my eye, and it said, we're a bank, we are 100% deployed on Vax VMS. All of our competitors are moving to Unix. And we think differently. We want to move to Windows NT across the board. And we want to do that on our trading floors first. And your job would be to figure out how to do that. Hmm. So I decided to apply for the job. I was a VMS systems programmer. I felt very confident that I knew how to understand the existing technology that Paribas had. And I'd started to do a lot of work on Windows for work groups because back then Windows NT hadn't shipped yet. And I just thought it sounded a fascinating project. I also knew a number of the deckies that had moved over to, to Microsoft and had kind of taken a lot of the deck thinking with them, if you know what I mean. And mm -hmm. I, I liked that thinking around how virtual memory worked, for example, and so on. So I decided to interview for that role. And after a number of interviews with some people who went on to be relatively famous in the financial sector, I ended up taking the job. So who are these famous people? Can you, can you, can you name names? <laughs> I uh, could do. Uh, Jean-Marc Bouellier, Simon McNamara, Clive Castle, and Patrick Stevenson, who was the CEO of Paribas. Oh, wow. And Pat Patrick basically said, you know, your job is to take this, and he pointed at his current trading desk running Vax VMS, to this. And he pointed to the, the Windows-based machine that was sitting inside a kind of mock trading desk, yeah. but didn't have any applications running on it. So it was, a, it was just a, a fantastic project to get involved in got to work with Herman Vicada, who was one of the really early detailed people on the Microsoft side, who even during the betas of uh, Windows NT had become extremely proficient. Between us, we're able to hire a team that one year later had deployed Windows NT across all the trading floors in the world at Paribas. So when you went to Paribas, you didn't have a particular interest in finance. You just, you were really kind of interested in the technology and that's what drew you into the space. 
Totally. I mean, my experience that got me the job was actually the Vax VMS experience, to be honest, you know, and the fascination with Windows and the opportunity there. The thing that I didn't know going into that was that this project was hugely important to both digital and Microsoft. At that time, digital and Microsoft were partnered together and people like Chris Conway and Bill Gates and others were extremely involved in making sure that this project was a success. Hmm. What Paribas wanted to do was to give the power of origination in the derivative markets to the trading floor jockeys. So we, we had a set of people on the trading floors who were able to build code next to the folks trading. Mm-hmm. There was a, an unusually large number of people from technology that moved into trading at Paribas uh, and vice versa. There were people that moved out of trading and into technology. So that, that kind of pool of talent uh, was very, very, very strong at math. That enabled Paribas, I think, to have a unique advantage in derivatives, which was really about the business operating model that had been set up by Patrick and Carol Tolliver and other people like that. They they really understood how to build a business model around a global derivatives platform and enable you to have full transparency of your credit risk with any counterparty anywhere in the world at any time. And that that real-time nature made actually the Windows part of this very complicated to build and deploy, but they weren't prepared to settle for anything less than they had had in the Vax VMS world. So that that was, it was a great, great place to learn, actually. And, you know, I ended up running market data. I ended up actually being the lead architect for Paribas Capital Markets, and it was a superb learning experience for me. For women and men who are looking to follow in your footsteps, and you know, get to the highest levels within the, the IT organizations at banks, what's some advice that you would offer them in how to do that? The first thing I would say is, is really understand the business, understand what business you're in, understand what the frustrations are in that business. Uh, one of the techniques that I like to use for that is open-ended questions and surveying the business. So doing market surveys with the business and just going out and talking to 500 people in the business and asking them, what are the things that frustrate you most about the technology that supports you? And don't lead the witness. Just just, just ask them the question. And what you get back from that is a set of the richest opportunities to drive change and make people's lives better. And so, I mean, we, we ran it at Merrill. It was called Reality Check. And, and Reality Check basically created 300 micro change programs, some of which turned into big change programs and some of which were just simple things that could be fixed and some we couldn't fix. But I think honesty and transparency with business leaders is extremely important. Hmm. Not being afraid to talk to CEOs, I think is also important. Yeah. And It can be very, very frightening going to talk to a CEO with a reputation that maybe is not that friendly, for example. But I've always found that people are people and, and, you know, most CEOs want the best for their business that they can get. They want their business to be the best it can be. They want their revenue to be the best it can be. And anything that you can do to help is something they want to listen to. So I think it's important to engage with the most senior people because that's the way you'll really understand what the strategy of the company is. The process you're describing of, you know, talking to lots of different folks within the bank is really the, the customer development process that, you know, is what entrepreneurship is all about. You brought that mindset to the roles you were in, 
even while working within a very large organization. Can you talk about that? Many people have said I was an innovator trapped in the enterprise before <laughs> before, before I, I did uh, found Sand Hill East and whatever. But I've never seen it that way. I, I never felt trapped. In fact, I felt like it was my my thing in life to bring these capabilities into companies that otherwise maybe would have taken longer to find them because they could deliver competitive advantage, you know, and 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 whether it's a front office competitive advantage around low latency trading and, and you know, deploying technologies, let's say like Exigy or Tavella before anybody else, or it's just making it easier to find the account you need to allocate to in the back office. All of these things, again, are about time. These are about latency in that front office example, and they're about back office time in the, in the second example. So it, I think it's really important to do that. And you're right, that is true. And that's why working with founders now are on that same set of use cases is a fairly well-worn record for me because I think it's important to do. And there's nothing I like better than founders that say, we've got three or four ideas about what to do in this space, but we're going to go talk to 50 potential customers and survey them and find out what their biggest pain points are before we start building anything. I love that. Right. So let's talk about that. After UBS, you became the CTO in residence at the Fintech Innovation Lab. Can you tell everyone what that program is about? And it occurs to me that this mentality that you've had since 95 is is a big part of the thesis behind the Fintech Lab. So um, I was involved in the initial creation of the Fintech Lab you know, about 10 years ago now. And, and in my role at, at Bank of America at that time, I felt like it was super important for the bank to be involved in innovation at every level. We had a large investment banking team in Silicon Valley. We actually had a number of our technology and uh, service businesses out there, like Countrywide, for example. And so I felt like it was it was really, really important to engage in a process both to build out fintech and and or what was called, I don't think it was even called fintech then actually but but to to get involved in innovation in financial services I thought would, was was really important and you know the fintech lab model of having large companies mentor you know fledgling ideas and startups it just really appealed to me so in I think late 2013, when, when Maria approached me and asked me to be CTO in residence at the uh, FinTech Lab, I was like, absolutely. I saw it as a way of extending many of the things I'd done you know, inside these large banks and, and to really help young entrepreneurs be successful you know, with their ideas, but take some of the techniques that we talked about previously and bring those into the private market space. The FinTech Lab is accepting applications right now for their next class. Can you tell people what it's like to be in the program and who should apply? The right companies to apply are companies who have a product, are ready to have that product tested by large organizations, and are looking for feedback on their product from the kind of companies they ultimately aspire to sell the product to. So Ideal is a V1 product or maybe V1.x product maybe a little bit of funding into the company, some angel funding, a little bit of seed funding, and people prepared to listen. That's the most important thing. Listening is at the heart of innovation, as they say, and coming into the FinTech Lab as a company that listens enables companies to have a trajectory coming out of the lab, which you can't get from anywhere else. 
I mean, there are 43 organizations that are sponsoring you as a member of, of the lab while you're in the lab. We have two or 300 people applying to get into what is you know, somewhere between, you know, six and 12 places, depending on the year and the scope. Obviously, we've been expanding the scope over the last few years to include InsureTech, for example. But I, I don't know of any other incubator or incubation technique that could give you as much of a, a leg up in terms of input into your product, input into the solution areas that your product can be applied, input into the business problems uh, that can be helped by those implementations in those solution areas, and also building a relationship network with people in the companies that end up mentoring you, and oftentimes beyond that as well. So it's not just the mentors. If the product's successful, the mentors are then telling other people. It's like the kind of net promoter score inside the lab, basically. And that then opens doors for you, particularly after the lab, when when maybe you've been successful with one or two of the people who mentored you. So I, I'm a really big fan of the lab. I think the, the lab's that have spun up as a result of the New York lab, like the London lab and other places around the world have also been super successful in both incubating ideas and in some cases bringing companies through those you know, non-New York labs into the New York lab has been super successful. Example of that would be a company like Cutover. Yeah, I was just remembering OpenFin was in the FinTech lab way back in 2013. And that's actually how you and I met in person for the first time. I think we'd, exactly. we, we, we'd interacted with some folks on your team mm-hmm. before that, but suddenly we're in the lab and I remember sitting next to you on a trading floor while you were talking about sort of your vision for, for where things were going. So yeah, I can certainly vouch for the level of access that being in that program gives you and, and the benefits that don't last just for the, the three months that you're in the program, but for years later, you know, we're still benefiting from that. So definitely highly recommend folks apply if you meet the criteria that Andy laid out. So Andy, let's, let's talk about Sand Hill East. When you got started, you know, with the FinTech Lab, were you already thinking about becoming an investor? Or is that something that you sort of discovered while you were interacting with entrepreneurs within the FinTech Lab? I had always been interested in investing and I had invested in a few private companies um, at various different points when I wasn't employed in a bank, like when I was on gardening leave or whatever. And I definitely thought that there was an opportunity to build an ecosystem in New York similar to the one that I was very familiar with in California. So, I mean, the actual name Sandhill East came from a bike ride up Sand Hill Road one day when I was actually in the process of leaving UBS. And I rode to the top of the mountain and, and, and looked back over Sand Hill Road, which is in Menlo Park in California for folks that don't know that. And just again, for people who don't know, 88% of the world's venture capital in tech comes out of one road, basically, <laughs> which is which is crazy, but, but true. And as I looked down, the sun was going down, it was a beautiful evening. And I was thinking about all the technologies that I had worked on with people in the Valley and how they had been morphed into the value that they had become by companies working east of Sand Hill Road. And so I was literally looking out over Sand Hill Road from the top of the mountain and I, I, I could see the lights extending all the way across America, it felt like. And, and I thought, well, you know, east of Sand Hill Road, there's, there's a real opportunity to help 
you know, Sand Hill Road invested companies figure out a path to market. And some of that would be about relationships, but a lot of it also is about product and, and, and making sure the product fits the use cases properly. But also, I thought, well, there must be an opportunity to build out an ecosystem like this for financial technology companies in New York City. 90% of our portfolio is in fintech, security technology, and enterprise technology that can be consumed in the finance and insurance industry. But the other 10% are people that we met along the way that we thought were passionate, loved what they were doing, needed help on one, two, or three things, you know, and so on. I kind of feel like building a business that's primarily around relationships, mentorship, connections, and just helping people succeed. It's a good business to run, to be honest. I have such a different day every day, right? Even just looking at my schedule, which is in front of me right now for today, I mean, I'm, I, we're, we're working with a company on, on you know, creating uh, a new commodities platform around diamonds today. That's one of the things we're doing. And, and huh. just the very the variation of things that I get to work on, I find very compelling. I really, really enjoy it. And I think my partners would probably tell you the same thing. Is the model the same today where you're you're investing personal capital and you don't have LPs in the company? Yeah, we have no LPs. We invest our own money. We are about to start an SPV process where we have a set of you know primary and secondary and tertiary investors who've asked us, and they're all individuals, no no companies, who've asked us if they can participate with us in our investments. And sometimes it's helpful, particularly at angel stage and seed stage, when you're trying to get something done. So it's more like New York Angels model, something like that. Yeah. But no, I mean, we, 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 we've toyed with the idea of creating a fund and we've thought about it fairly deeply. Uh, but we think an SPV model is actually a much better model. So you sign up for an individual investment if you like it, and you're part of a network of people who assess business ideas when you see them. And you bring people in who can offer the most value and the most help to the company that's, that's being invested in. Andy, what advice do you give to founders and, and leaders of the companies that you invest in? It honestly depends on the stage, Mazzy. I think if, if it's very, very early, I mean, we've worked on some companies like Netomi from the very first PowerPoint. So at that point, it's not advice, it's partnership. It's like, let's sit down together and try and figure out what is the value proposition for this business? How are we going to be differentiated? And so on and so forth. But for most companies that that we find that are in, you know, mid angel to mid seed stage. It's about people more than anything else. I think it's about talent. It's about diversity. It's about thinking differently than particularly people who come out of the enterprise and into entrepreneurship for the first time. You really do have to think differently. So asking them to ask these questions of themselves and their potential customers, you know, is super important. Don't raise money too quickly is one of my favorite things that I learned from my own startup, Destone. We, mm -hmm. we raised a lot of money in the Series A and we were convinced we had a great idea. And we, you know, we did have a great idea, but we were five years too early. And many, many great entrepreneurs have an idea way ahead of their time and they raise too much money too quickly. And as a result, end up much too diluted in their own idea. Yeah. I much prefer to go slowly. I much prefer not to rush to Series A's. I don't mind doing three convertible bridges in a company that's trying to figure out what the right strategy is. As long as we get there in the end, 
the age-old capabilities of founders, which, you know, persistence, resilience, being passionate about what you believe in. Don't let people tell you that your idea is not the right idea. Instead, try to convince them that actually there are some aspects of your idea that do make sense. What are some of the, the themes right now that you're the most excited about in fintech? Well, I think actually the themes are broader than fintech, but they're certainly being applied in fintech. My longtime mentor and friend, Ken Tradigio, said to me recently that there is only ABCD. And I said, what do you mean there is only ABCD? And he said, there's AI, blockchain, cloud, and data. Everything else <laughs> is, 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 is everything else. But those are the, the key kind of investment strategies. And I've added S to that. So I've called it ABCDs now, because I think supply chain is super interesting right now as well. And that's certainly very interesting in fintech and across many, many of the different asset classes that you and I have both worked in in our our previous career. Mm -hmm. We're starting to see now those things really come together, which is super exciting. I mean, whether it's in, you know, the, the fixed income businesses, where there's an element of syndication and Many, many participants are, are, are working together on a product or the distribution of a product or, or the middle and back office and just the standardization of, of those processes on a, a common back end, starting to reduce the data bloat and number of instances of the same data across different parts of the organization and across organizations as well. When you think about a trade that originated in you know, the Canada widow's pension fund via fidelity to the executing broker or through the prime broker to the executing broker and then all the way to DTCC and all the way back. The more we can automate the supply chains in finance, the more transparent and visible everything will be. So I I think the application of AI blockchain, you know, cloud and broader data is super interesting. And to kind of just home in on one particular thing, data in at the moment is super, super interesting. So whether it's supply chain data, understanding your suppliers, your suppliers, suppliers, this has been a big theme during COVID and people starting to think about how do they change their supply chain so that they're less dependent on individual suppliers, individual countries and so on, I think has been a theme we spent a fair amount of time on during COVID as well. And then I think any of the uh, untouchable platforms in finance are looking much more touchable, I, I would say. So, so I think, you know, I think people have assumed that things will carry on as they have been uh, for most of our careers anyway, forever. And I don't think that's going to be the case. I, I think that, that these new marketplaces are changing the way uh, trading is done. Crypto is changing many, many things at the moment is super, super interesting. I think in the end, we'll still end up with a broad, diverse set of companies in this year's lab, like last year. Digital reskilling, actually, super interesting from last year's class. I've continued working with uh, with Skyhive uh, on that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think, you know, when you think about the longevity of skills and the application of those skills to roles or jobs that that pay you i think we're in a world now where every five years you need to refresh your skills and and make sure that you're current with the way job opportunities are changing and as you know machine learning and ai and nlp and 
the ability to start to orchestrate capabilities that have machine learning and AI together to start to do more complex things move to the fore, people are going to have to be much more adaptable than they have been in the past in terms of reskilling. So I think that's a really, really big theme. I personally have always been most happy when I'm learning and teaching. I really feel like a role where you learn all the time is super useful to you right now because learning oftentimes is the door opener to doing the next thing that you end up doing in your career. And yeah. so I, I, I think it's hard to give advice on careers right now, especially to young people. But I do think that, that continuing to learn often just opens doors that otherwise wouldn't be open to you. Yeah. Well, that is some of the best advice I've heard. I think everyone should follow that advice. I wholeheartedly agree with that approach to uh, thinking about your career. Andy, this has been great. We've talked a lot about work. Before we leave, can you tell us something that you do outside of work that you're passionate about? I'm passionate about my family. I, I uh, you know, I have family spread all over the world. I have five children, one in Los Angeles, one in London, one in rugby, one at college actually in Connecticut, and uh, one right here with us at home in, in her freshman year at high school. So we spend a lot of time with family, grandchild too in rugby. That takes up a lot of a lot of our time, and you know, again, in, you know, investing in your own children, helping your own children figure out career paths, or even just you know what to participate in, is has also been a super interesting thing for me to be involved in. You know, my my advice to my own children has been to do what they're passionate about and follow a path that's not straight. Always try to find curves in the road. Always try to have that conversation with that person that you met, which could be random, but could turn into something. And they're all doing completely different things. They're in different businesses. They're in, I've got a teacher, I've got a uh, digital designer at JP Morgan, and I've got a, a person in the film industry. Uh, my son, uh, Nick, is in the film industry in, in Los Angeles. With the two younger ones, with Nasty and Caitlin, I, it's the same thing. I want them to do the thing that they're most passionate about and spend their time and investing in the things that they really love. And I think it's often easy as a parent to to kind of push your children to the things that you love. Yeah. And there's only one thing that we all love, and that is Tottenham Hotspur. There is no... <laughs> <laughs> so if I've infected my children with one thing, it's supporting the best soccer team in the world. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, again, really terrific advice, Andy and a, a wonderful note to end on. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. That's my pleasure. It was great to hang out with you. And uh, thanks again for the opportunity. I'd like to thank Andy for joining us and you for listening. John Siracusa is our show's producer. You can also hear John interview fintech founders and the VCs who fund them on the Bank On It podcast. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast.